This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfury.com, the Tom Hartman program, the David Pakman show, the Majority Report, the Young Turks, and the Progressive. And a note to all listeners that you may want to hold your earned benefits close at hand as we're entering a high-theft area. Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a blimp! It's, it's... Newly frugal guy! Here to warn you of the fiscal cliff! It all started back when I, newly frugal guy, and my newly frugal hopscateers helped create the fiscal cliff to teach you the evils of deficit spending. With the spendocrats, we had to threaten you with absolute destruction, so you'd cut the deficit we're now warning you against cutting. You see, citizens, the cliff would dramatically cut the deficit, but it would do so by cutting Pentagon spending, which, through the mysteries of newly frugalness, is huge government spending that is amazingly not socialistic. We all know true deficit reduction can only come from cutting pinko social programs, like schools, health, and welfare. The fiscal cliff also threatens to blow up the Bush tax cuts. And devious spendocrats want taxes for the rich to return to what they were during the dark days of Clinton. Back when the economy was... was... well, never mind. Newly frugal guy will fight to ensure the spendocrats finally become more moderate. They agree never to raise taxes on the rich and adopt the tax policy of the great recently losing party by closing unnamed loopholes and deductions. (coughs) Then we will be on our way to fighting the deficit with a newly frugal bipartisan future for all. Newly frugal guy. Free market ho! Ho! Incredible opportunity is coming for America, in my humble opinion, starting in just a couple of weeks. The Bush tax cuts are going to expire. Pentagon spending is going to be slashed, although still hugely larger than just a decade ago it it will be. And to make conservatives smile, funding for programs that keep poor and unemployed people alive and healthy are going to be cut. Now, this is an opportunity for several reasons. First... When the Bush tax cuts expire at the end of the year, everybody's taxes are going to go up, particularly taxes on the rich and the very rich, which means that if Democrats propose cutting taxes on working class people while ignoring the new rates for the rich, after the first of the year, Republicans can sign on and vote for the legislation without violating their blood oath to multimillionaire K Street lobbyist Grover Norquist. While you know, it goes nowhere as far as it should, which would be to roll back the Reagan tax cuts. It's a start on moving America in a more egalitarian direction. Second, most of the cuts, this is the sequestration stuff that happens at the end of the year, right? Most of those cuts to the Pentagon budget 
are good things. The Pentagon has lost over $2 trillion they can't account for. It's a good guess you'll find a lot of it in the 20 bedroom mansions owned by defense contractors and lobbyists that ring the Washington, D.C. suburbs. And this nation needs a healthy and robust debate on our role as empire. And President Obama said this during the campaign. It's time to do some nation building right here at home. And third, by breaking out the social spending cuts and requiring Republicans, particularly in the House of Representatives, which they control, to go on record on their position on cuts for social services, the American people will get to see upfront and personal Paul Ryan's and Mitt Romney's 47% are moochers philosophy played out large. Americans will see in a way that's absolutely irrefutable that the Republican Party is only out for the interests of the top of 1% and doesn't give a rat's patootie about working people or the poor. That could also, keep in mind, the Democrats got a half million more votes for the House of Representatives this year than Republicans did, and yet Republicans control the House because of gerrymandering. But if you expose enough Republicans as wackadoodle right-wing crazies who basically hate working people, elderly, the poor, whatever, uh, and are only carrying water for the very, very rich, that could set the stage for a Democratic victory in the House of Representatives in two years. Because every two years, 100%, all 435, every single member of the House of Representatives is up for re-election every two years. So to make the most of this opportunity, Democrats need to have legislation in place now, this week or next, that addresses these three issues. In my opinion, it should be three separate bills that will break out each of the issues. First, cuts taxes on middle and lower income people while leaving rich people's taxes the same as they were during the Clinton years. The second ratifies cuts to the Pentagon budget, but in a way that's rational and reflects the reality that our biggest current and future threats are not nuclear war, but cyber war. Not so much nation states as non-state actors angry that our drones kill their families. The legislation should incidentally put some serious limits on presidential power to be judge, jury, and executioner via drone strikes, particularly when the target is an American citizen, but frankly, I'd say for any human being. If the Democrats put this legislation on the table now, with the promise of a vote on it the week after the new year, it would soothe the fears of those who believe in the uncertainty fairy. And if it's decent legislation, it'll give progressives a rallying point to, to pressure their members of Congress. Which, frankly, I'd, you know, I'd much rather see a rollback of the incredibly destructive Reagan tax cuts. But this, at least, would be a start. It would calm the hysteria. I mean, it would make the Republicans hysterical, but everybody else, you know. It would provide a basis for moving forward. It would put the lie to the stupid Republican theory that it's good for our economy when the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. If you combine all of this with some reasonable trade policies like those advanced by Senators Sherrod Brown and Bernie Sanders, we could even see a return to the Eisenhower and Clinton prosperities. So everybody's all hysterical about this so-called fiscal cliff, a phrase that Ben Bernanke coined. I think it's time to drive off the so-called fiscal cliff. Once done, Americans are going to realize, first, it's nothing but a speed bump. It's just a speed bump. And this whole Thelma and Louise thing 
this hysteria that's being hyped by the so-called deficit hawks. Oh, my God, we're going to go off the edge down into the Grand Canyon. We're all going to die. Oh, no. No. We can fix this. And let the new Congress do it. With more Democrats in the House of Representatives and some good ones. You know, let Alan Grayson loose on them. And in the Senate, some brilliant Democrats in the Senate. Let Tammy Baldwin after them. Let Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren after him. We can do this. We can do it quickly. I mean, John Boehner's going to have to be dragged to the table, kicking and screaming, which is going to be a challenge because Eric Cantor's always standing right behind him with that knife in his, you know, poking his kidney. But, yeah, that shiv. But it could be done. So that's my take on the, on the, this, you know, if everybody's hysterical about the fiscal cliff, I'm like, you know, it's a bungee cord. It's, it's, a, it's an off ramp for craziness. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Joining me is uh, Richard Wolf. He's an economist and professor emeritus at my alma mater, the University of Massachusetts. Professor Wolf, we're hearing so much instantly the day after President Obama was reelected. The conversation turned to this fiscal cliff that we are told is is coming. Let's walk through first of all what is meant by fiscal cliff, and is it really a cliff? Well, it's probably a cliff, but let me leave that to your listener and explain what it is. Uh, If you go back about a year, uh, there was a standoff between Obama and the Republicans uh, in the House of Representatives about doing two things, dealing with the deficit and raising the uh, debt limit, allowing the government to borrow more, which it now has to do all the time because the economic crisis we're in has cut revenue to the government and therefore, it's always in the need of borrowing money if it's going to keep up its spending, which it kind of has to do to try to offset the crisis. So they couldn't reach an agreement. They kept trying. And so finally, they did what our political uh, gridlock leadership often does. They kicked the proverbial can down the road. They reached an agreement that if they were not able, over the next 12 and a half months or so, that is, till around now, till the end of this year, if they were unable to come to some sort of agreement about how to reduce the government's deficit, either by raising taxes or by cutting government spending or some combination of both of them, if they couldn't agree, then they both agreed last year that an automatic set of tax increases and an automatic set of spending cuts would go into effect. And the fiscal cliff 
refers to what will happen literally on the 31st of December of this year if the president and the Republicans cannot work out a deal, what will happen is all of these, quote, automatic cuts um, in spending and increases in taxes will go into effect as of January 1, and that will have a severely negative effect on the economy, hence the term cliff. Okay, now let's go through it piece by piece. First of all are the tax cuts which would be allowed to expire. Now, presumably these expirations would not be retroactive. In other words, at the end of this year, people will have four and a half or three and a half months during which to file their taxes for 2012. However, those rates are set, correct? In other words, the tax increases would apply to the 2013 tax year, which would not even be filed until 2014. Am I, am I close on that? Yes, but you've got to be careful here. Um, first of all, if your taxes go back up, that is, if they do not continue the tax cuts from the Bush administration, which is part of what this is all about, uh, then your withholding, for example, on your weekly paycheck would go up immediately in January to reflect the fact that you would now be having to pay a higher rate of taxes than you did during 2012. So there would be an immediate impact that way. Also, part of the Cliff deal uh, has to do with the cut in the payroll tax that Obama got through uh, this year, so that we're paying all people who have to pay their Social Security uh, portion of their withholding every week or every month when you get paid. That also would go up because it's been reduced this year quite substantially from what it normally is. So you'd have more withheld for the income tax and more withheld for your Social Security uh, if this cliff, uh, going over the cliff, these automatic um, tax increases go into effect. From the point of view of what would have the, the, the least negative or maybe most positive effect on the economy as a whole, what is your analysis of what type of deal could be struck that would be, given what's possible, the ideal scenario? Well, that's a kind of difficult question to answer. Both Republicans and Obama and the Democrats agree that the deficit has to be brought down. Let me put aside for a, for a moment whether that's realistic or necessary. But they all agree that that's what has to happen. Their only disagreement is on exactly how to get that done. That is, what combination of tax increases and government spending cuts will accomplish that goal. That said, it is certain, virtually certain, that whatever they agree, or whatever kind of cliff we go over, the impact on our economy will be negative. Why? Because what the government spends, if that's going to be cut, that means there's less government entering the economy, buying goods and services, because that's what it means if the government's expenditures are cut. And that means all kinds of people who thought they would get a check from the government, workers, businesses, will be disappointed. And that disappointment will ramify through the economy. Number two, whoever's taxes get raised, and by ever how much, that will also be negative. Because as the government takes more taxes out of the pockets of people and businesses, that's less they have left to spend, which means it's less stimulus that they're providing by their spending to the economy. 
So no matter how you look at it, the effect on the economic situation in the United States, which isn't good to begin with, is going to be negative. You have to believe that a deficit is so bad that you're willing to improve the conditions of the deficit even at the cost of a negative impact on the economy. So that's what they're all agreed to do. Now, to get to the second part of your question, what would be an alternative to what they're about to do? And the answer is either decide that deficit isn't a big problem now. And how does that reasoning work? The following. It is so dangerous in a depressed economy. And let's remember, we're in a depressed economy that has been unable to get out of its doldrums since the autumn of 2007. That's over five years now. It is very unwise, a whole raft of people say, to negatively impact the economy at such a time. So they argue, put the deficit question aside. We can return to dealing with the deficit when our economy is once again on a steady upward growth path, which is what we hope for. And the way to do that is to have the government not raise taxes and not cut its spending. If anything, do the opposite. So that the gamble would be, let's stimulate the economy and grow our way out of this crisis, rather than reduce the deficit, but at the cost of giving a negative jolt to an already hobbled economic system. Finally, suppose you take seriously the deficit, that you think it should be cut, but worry about the negative impact on the economy of going over the cliff or any of the kinds of uh, agreements that the Republicans and Democrats are likely to achieve. Then the answer is actually quite simple. You've got to tax the rich. And the reason you tax the rich is the following. Rich people are not going to change their spending habits if you jack their taxes a little bit. That's what it means to be rich. They have enough, and Lord knows the top 1% to 5% in the United States fully fill this description. They earn so much money. They have a larger share of income over the last 30 years than anything they had before. That taxing them, even significantly, is not going to change the apartments they live in, the cars they drive, the vacations they take, the food they buy, the clothing they wear, or anything else. So you can get the money out of their hands, because it's basically sitting doing nothing in their bank accounts, get it out of their hands, give it into the hands of the government, which will spend it in a way that will stimulate the economy, precisely what the rich are not doing, and then you would be able to lower the deficit because the government would be taxing the rich, it wouldn't have to borrow. And here's the final irony. When the government taxes the rich, it's actually making an arrangement to move money out of the hands of the rich that is no different from when the government borrowed to pay for a deficit. Since the people the government borrowed from are the same rich that it would otherwise tax. So you can reduce the deficit, the government doesn't have to borrow, by taxing the rich rather than borrowing from them, which is what we've been doing the last five years. That's the way to deal with the deficit, to avoid going over the negative impact of the cliff, and tax those most able to pay and who've done the best. And the irony, the sad, tragic irony is that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats 
dare to discuss, let alone seriously consider that option, not because it isn't the best for our economy, but because the people they would have to tax are the ones that finance both of the parties in all of their elections, and so we're stuck in the situation we now face. Well, you, you answered what was going to be my next question, which is, are all tax cuts equally stimulative? So now that we've covered that, we can say we've been speaking with economist and professor emeritus from the University of Massachusetts, Richard Wolff. We will see what happens in the next six weeks, and then, of course, we'll check back in, in with you. Thank you so much. Very welcome, Dave. I hear the bells down in the canyons. It's snow in New York. Some blue December, I'm going to the moon. About you, girl, and I'm calling to you Throughout the world, all I can Hear the bells are ringing joyful and triumphant And I can Hear the bells are ringing joyful and triumphant So I've been talking about this Ezra Klein piece and good for him. There's nothing courageous about raising the Social Security retirement age. Now, it doesn't mention COLA in this. There's two ways that the establishment, well, there's really three ways, I guess, in which the establishment wants to destroy Social Security. One is simply to privatize it. One is to raise the retirement age. One is to change the way cost of living in increases are calculated. As it stands now, the way that cost of living increases are calculated, COLAs, actually do not keep pace with inflation if you look at inflation for senior citizens. Why would inflation be higher for senior citizens? because they buy less things and they buy certain things. Prescription drugs, for instance, that tend to increase in cost at a, a faster rate than other products in society. So as it is now, Social Security is barely, if not, not keeping up with the cost of things for senior citizens those are the people who use Social Security, primarily. And Ezra Klein here, to his credit, takes on the idea of raising the retirement age. There has been a lot of data that has come out, most recently, just a couple weeks ago, that shows that actually white women, without a college education, their lifespan has been decreasing. You hear a lot of people talk about, well, uh, the lifespan of people has increased by seven, eight years since FDR started Social Security. Well, that's true if people only describes those people who are in the top half of the income uh, distribution. But for people in the bottom half of the income distribution, there has been virtually no increase in years lived past the age of 65 over the past 70. Maybe a year, year and a half 
over the past 70 years. And during that time, the retirement age has gone up probably about two. It's going to be 67 for me. Now, of course, you can retire early. You get less benefits. But full benefits come at age 67 for someone my age in their 40s. So Ezra Klein has a piece here. where he says, what do we know about the people who retire at age 62? On average, they have a shorter life expectancy and lower earnings than people retiring at later ages. If anyone stood up and said, instead of doing uniform across-the-board cuts, let's make them a little worse for people who have shorter life expectancies and lower earnings, they'd be laughed at. Of course, those who say we should raise the Social Security retirement age don't get laughed at. It's considered a very thoughtful, courageous effort to deal with our entitlement programs. The people wandering around calling for a higher retirement age will never feel the bite of the policy. Think tankers and politicians and columnists don't retire at age 62 or even age 65. They love their work, which mostly requires sitting down in air-conditioned rooms. They stick around pretty much until they're about to die. The courage it takes to call for a higher retirement age is the courage to say that other people who don't have it as good as you should be the ones to shore up Social Security. It's the same kind of courage as a poor person calling for higher taxes on the rich or a sitting congressman calling for a war he'll never have to fight in. I'd say it's even worse than that last thing. Sitting congressman can't really escape the fact that he sent people to war. You'd have to be a little bit a little bit more pathological than he would be, just sort of, it's quite possible that a congressman or a columnist would have no concept that, hey, it's hard on people if they, they, can't, they can't retire at 62 or 65. I don't know anybody like that, and to the extent that I do, I've never had a conversation beyond like, uh, yeah, pick me up at, um, at four. I'll be back out in 45 minutes. Or, I would like the, well, what's a good red for this that would go with this? I don't know. They just won't have those conversations with those people. And he makes the point, meanwhile, you could do more to erase Social Security shortfall by simply lifting the payroll tax cap. A lot more. According to the Congressional Budget Office, raising the federal retirement age to 70 would solve about half the Social Security funding problem, while lifting the payroll tax cap would solve all of it. So you can simply solve all of the problem by making people like Mitt Romney pay 6%, not just on his first 110000 but on the four hundred, six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars he makes via wages in a year, that's as opposed to the other nineteen million dollars he makes through through capital gains. Carried interest.
Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. And every show Black Friday is uh, coming. It's actually going to start tomorrow on Thanksgiving. They're starting Black Friday at like 8 p.m. at some of the Walmarts. And if you've noticed some of the media covers, they go out to the Walmart or the, and, they, and they show the people camping out waiting to buy a TV for $100 off. But what they don't talk about is that over uh, 1,000 stores nationwide, uh, workers at 1,000 Walmart stores are planning on striking. Now, they're not even allowed to strike because they're not a union. Uh, and again, it's against the National Labor Relations Board rules for you to strike in order to set up a union. It does, it's all this stuff that's anti-union. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that's what's happening. And what are they, so the world's biggest retailer, one of the most profitable countries, the number two on Fortune 500 uh, list of companies in America, most profitable. Most of their employees have to, to, they don't have health care, they have to take welfare and food stamps, and they have to get assistance from the government to see doctors, and this is the number one uh, retailer in the world, number two on Fortune 500, so they're, they're striking for things like, um, hey, we'd like to have a schedule when we come to work. We'd like to know that when we're going to work and when it's going to be, and they all of a sudden will punish people, too, people who decided to, so it's not a union, it's called our Walmart. They're just people workers getting together and they have some demands yeah and so it's also starting down the supply it's also starting down the supply chain we'll get to I that i just want to briefly mention some some uh, some stats on walmart so they have 1.4 million workers which is uh, a bigger workforce than any other entity in the world uh, after the u.s army and the chinese army so the u.s army the chinese army then walmart so they have 1.4 million workers and the walton family has more wealth than 42% of the United States. I mean, that's unbelievable that, that so, these six people have more money, so more the, wealth than roughly 150 million Americans. Yes, one family, not, their wealth I think is $95 billion, the Walton family, mm -hmm. and so this thing about that statistic, they have more wealth, that one family, than 42% of the bottom 42% of America. Mm -hmm. So you can see how there's a problem with our system, with our and capitalistic system. And they got that system. way by, by, by literally pinching their pennies and screwing over their workers at every turn. At every turn. Yeah, so, they, so these workers start off at $8 an hour and they get a 20 cent raise uh, every year or so, but right. then it gets capped, so they can't go above a certain amount. Right. So what happens is, like, like Jimmy mentioned, you know, many, many uh, workers at Walmart are on, they need to get money from the government. They need, you know, welfare assistance, right. food stamps, healthcare, Medicaid, and who pays for that? You pay for that. We all pay for that. So we are all, in a way, subsidizing Walmart. Meanwhile, you know, Walmart um, heirs and heiresses are doing their best to support Republican candidates who try to uh, cut their estate taxes and cut their uh, capital gains. 
and um, you know, it's no accident that they made so much money by screwing over all of their workers. Um, that's exactly. Well, I don't. I've I've wanted someone to do this. I'm not a mathematician, mm -hmm. but it would be nice to see what if they did uh, pay their workers a living wage. What would it work? So because their profits went down. They the, it was 15 billion dollars last year. That 15.6 billion dollars was their profit. Okay. So uh, what if they decided to only make seven billion dollars in profit and gave the other seven and a half billion dollars to their workers in forms of uh, uh, medical care and, uh, and pay, compensation? I wonder what that would do. I mean, I wonder if they could do that. I wonder how much it would cost them to pay their workers a living wage. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but, um, but there was a, a study that was done where they uh, looked at the economic impact of a Walmart coming into a community. And what happens is that uh, what, when, when a Walmart comes in, it destroys all the independent, you know, right. know pharmacists and hardware stores and bookstores right. and, and, and little grocery stores. They all go out of business. Right. So, uh, so then they have no choice but to then work at Walmart for, you know, just a fraction of what they were making right. before. And then they're so poor, they have no choice but to shop at a Walmart at their, you know, very low rates. So what, what Walmart does to any um, economy is to basically, it's a parasite. Yes. It, it sucks out as much as it can and, and then leaves the government to kind of fill in the gaps for those people so that they don't just die of starvation or, or uh, lack of health care. And that's how Walmart makes its money. I heard them calling in the distance, so I packed my things and ran. I hit cars with my two hands Alone we traveled on With nothing but a shadow We fly far away Hold your horses now Congratulations to everyone who participated in the coordinated actions against Walmart this Black Friday. For too long, this giant company has gotten away with treating its employees shabbily. For too long, it has discriminated against women. For too long, it has paid its workers a pittance. For too long, it has denied decent health care benefits to them. And for too long, it's resisted every single solitary attempt to organize a union there. And this week, it made its employees work even on Thanksgiving night, wrecking the holiday for them. So, gloriously... Dissident workers at Walmart, along with the United Food and Commercial Workers, declared a nationwide day of action against Walmart on this sacred shopping day. Talk about aiming at the Achilles heel. By social media, the action caught on virally, and people in a thousand cities across the country have been out with their picket signs against the bullies of Bentonville. This is how we're going to bring this company and other viciously anti-worker firms to heel by a mix of traditional union tactics and modern means of mass communication. Corporate America, beware. The days of labor quiescence are over. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. You try to split our unions by religion and by race. You called us Reds and anarchists, but we laughed right in your face. Now you tell us times are different and you got us on the run 
And your thugs call the consultant, well, he's still a hired gun. And we got a little message that will shake your corporate suites. You may own the company, but it's we who own the streets. So if you want to stop us, we say, come and bring it on. The more that you repress us, the more that we grow strong. You know, the biggest message out of the 2012 election that you'll never hear from the corporate media in America is this. That Americans believe and voted to affirm that belief. The government can be a solution to the problems we face. The government can do good things and that Ronald Reagan was wrong. America is not a right-wing nation. It's, we're not even a center-right nation. We never have been. In 1935, FDR brought us Social Security. We loved it then. We still love it now. And that, of course, is just the tip of the iceberg of policies that prove America is a leftist nation. If you call leftists people who believe the government can do things well. It started with the founders who put the phrase general welfare in the Constitution twice. First in the preamble to define the reason our government was created. And then in the powers given to Congress, Article 1, Section 8, to raise taxes and spend money to promote the general welfare. People go, well, that's not one of the enumerated powers. Well, here's what one of our actual founders, Alexander Hamilton, had to say about the general welfare clause that he helped write into the Constitution. He was there at the Constitutional Convention. Although he did leave for a couple of weeks, go back to New York in a fit of pique, because on opening day, he had argued that the president should be appointed for life because we wanted to imitate the British monarchy, and they hooted him out of the room. But in any case, he came back, and he said, this was in the 21st part of his report to Congress. I misattributed it last week to the, uh, to the Federalist Papers. It's, it's uh, Hamilton's report to Congress on how to build a strong manufacturing sector, also known as, as his report on manufacturers, written uh, on manufacturers, written in 1791, when he was the Secretary of the Treasury in the George Washington administration. He said, and I quote, the terms general welfare were doubtless intended to signify more than was expressed or imported in those which preceded. The phrase is as comprehensive as any that could have been used because it is not fit that the constitutional authority of the Union to appropriate its revenues should have been restricted within narrower limits than the general welfare. It is therefore of necessity left to the discretion of the national legislature to pronounce upon which objects which concern the general welfare, and for which, under that description, an appropriation of money is requisite and proper. End of quote from Alexander Hamilton. Since then, general welfare has included everything from Thomas Jefferson creating a free college system with the University of Virginia to Abraham Lincoln massively expanding that free college system with land-grant colleges across the nation and creating the Department of Agriculture to Teddy Roosevelt passing the Pure Food Act, the Meat Inspection Act, creating the Department of Commerce and Labor, breaking up big corporations, regulating the railroads, to Dwight Eisenhower building the interstate highway system and massively expanding our schools and hospitals with government funds. You know, during the Eisenhower administration, 80% of the cost of every hospital built in this country was paid for with federal dollars. General welfare has included everything from child labor laws to the 40-hour work week to workplace safety laws. America has always advocated this liberal view as Americans. The first president to sign an appropriation to care for poor, homeless, and hungry people so they could get free housing, medical care, and food when they were down and out or disabled, the first president, George Washington. 
our Revolutionary War, 1776, was fought on the premise that government could be good and that we could successfully prove that by creating a good government here in North America. Of course, there have been periods of time when, even though the vast majority of Americans have always been progressive, our government was more conservative. The reason for that disconnect? It's pretty simple. The majority of Americans couldn't even vote until 1920 when women got the vote. And even then, a large minority of Americans were kept away from the ballot box by Jim Crow policies that were only outlawed in the 1960s, but continue to this day. In fact, we saw them six days ago in places like Ohio and Florida. You have to stand in line for six, eight, ten hours to vote. That's Jim Crow. But America has been a liberal nation since our founding. George Washington wrote a letter to Alexander Hamilton in 1796. And he said, if the nation could successfully educate all of our people, quote, sentiments of more liberality in the general policy of the country would result from it, end quote. In other words, George Washington said, give people a good education, they'll become liberals. The result over time was that we ended up with a national policy of free education for all of us. George Washington took us liberal, and we've been moving that way ever since. And so with this massive progressive victory in 2012, when more Democrats than Republicans even got votes for the House of Representatives, the Democratic Party finds itself at a crossroads. Are they going to return to the liberal roots of Thomas Jefferson, the founder of the party, and its standard bearers like FDR and JFK? Or is the Obama administration going to take the third way of discredited conservadems like Ben Nelson, Blanche Lincoln, and Erskine Bowles. At the end of his second term in office, FDR faced this exact same problem within his party. He wanted to go even more progressive, bringing in Democratic Socialist Henry Wallace as his vice president. The party was rebelling, saying they wanted a moderate. So FDR wrote a letter to the party saying, In the century in which we live, the Democratic Party has received the support of the electorate only when the party with absolute clarity has been the champion of progressive and liberal policies and principles of government. The Democratic Party has failed consistently when, through political trading and chicanery, it has fallen into the control of those interests, personal and financial, which think in terms of dollars instead of in terms of human values. It is best not to straddle ideals. The party must go wholly one way or wholly the other. It cannot face in both directions at the same time. End of quote. The Democratic Party went along with FDR, it nominated Wallace, and kept moving in such a progressive direction that FDR even proposed a second Bill of Rights, although he died before he could see it through. So President Obama, Harry Reid, and Nancy Pelosi, question, is your party the party of Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Kennedy? Or is it the party of Joe Lieberman, Erskine Bowles, and Joe Manchin? Is it progressive or blue dog? Because the American people are solidly behind progressive policies. And now is the time the President Obama and the Democratic Party leadership have to decide. Are you with the people or are you with the banksters?
This Thursday at uh, Le Poisson Rouge, for those of you who don't speak French, is the French is the um, red fish uh, in Manhattan. The uh, the uh, that uh, Rolling Jubilee is holding a fundraiser now. My apparently it's sold out, so um, not terribly helpful for you folks. Other than to know that it's going on, they the. Uh, the Rolling Jubilee, we'll put a link up on, uh, on the site. They've already raised $129,000, which will be enough to buy $2.5 million worth of defaulted loans. There are a lot of sort of mechanical issues that we didn't have a chance to get into with uh, David that uh, I'm hoping to talk to someone over the next week or so, maybe after Thanksgiving, as to what's involved with this. Issues like... If you buy up someone's debt and then relieve them of that debt by sending a certificate, essentially, which is what the plan here, by saying that uh, we're not going to collect on this debt. We're basically giving you the money that you owe back to you. You as that person whose debt has been relieved, are you liable for that uh, in terms of taxes? Because you're getting a gift in kind of some sort. That's, there's, there's many other questions. That's one of the more prominent ones. I think the important thing to keep in mind here is not that the rolling jubilee is going to relieve in a broad-based way uh, Americans of their debt. But what I think it's going to do is begin or to continue this process of people re-examining debt and their relationship to the debtors. I mean, you know, it is there is a there is a sort of like there's the same quality. And it was lawyer Matthew, I should say. I didn't want to tell David Graber this. But it was lawyer Matthew who sent me that email. Now uh, members will will be are quite aware of, of who lawyer Matthew is, uh, who sent me that email when I was asking him about this, uh, who whose reaction to debt was like most of ours. And there's the same quality that we have to debt. Lawyer Matthew is here. He's on the IM. Um, there's the same relationship that we have to debt in the same way that, like, back in the Middle Ages, you know, the peasants had to the kings. You know, it's, like, divine. There's some, like, sort of, like, it. it is a an a priori relationship. It, it's not – we don't even question – the notion of of whether or not debt is and this type of debt that we find ourselves is legitimate um, on some level this it could be argued that people are in debt in many respects it's a form of blackmail uh, if you want to survive or have the opportunity for certain things you gotta go into debt for it Certainly in the case of, uh, of medical debt, which we know that over 50% of bankruptcies are a function of that, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to walk out of the hospital? Are you going to take your child out of the hospital? Because you're not going to be able to pay this and you know you're not going to be able to pay it? I mean, that would be theoretically the moral thing to do, right? 
And so I think, you know, the best thing about this uh, rolling jubilee, aside from for those people who are lucky enough to have their debt bought, and apparently they're starting exclusively with medical debt, is that it will cause a reexamination. I mean, we're just at the beginning of this, folks. We are just at the beginning of this. And, and look, you know, the responsible people in Washington will say that the idea of perceiving debt as illegitimate, as breaking your promise to pay your credit card company that is charging you 20, 25% interest, is the most wretched thing you do. And incidentally, we're so responsible that we're going to cut your cost of living increases in Social Security in the future. That promise we can break. <laughs> uh, we're going to bail out uh, the bondholders for General Motors, but that promise for your pension and your health care to the unions, that we can break. We know that we have given promises to union members who work for municipal governments about their pension, but that one we can break. That's not a debt that we owe. I mean, so, you know, contemplate this. Why are there two sets of rules? for promises and debts. Tell me this solid if you would, pretty lady, please grab your martini and meet me on the balcony. I prepared a live show, you could fake a melody, we could argue over where and when the symbol hits should be. So often, apologists for President Obama will say, but Cenk, you don't understand. There's nothing he can do. He's negotiating with Republicans. He has to compromise. Are you against compromise? No, I'm not against compromise. Which knucklehead would believe in a black and white world where you never compromise? Maybe a Republican, right? The question is, what's in the compromise? I mean, sometimes I'm amazed at the shallowness of the conversation in Washington, D.C. when it comes to either politicians or reporters. Like, they're like, I guess the liberals are against compromise. Well, what the hell is in the compromise? All right, let's say you had a compromise with your wife. She says, all right, you know what, I'll let you watch a half an hour of TV on Wednesday, and I will control television the rest of the week. So you don't get to watch football, you don't get to watch anything you like, uh, sports, no, you don't watch any of your favorite shows. I watch it, but I'm going to give you a half an hour on Wednesday nights. It's a compromise. Come on, so if you're, what, you're not in favor of compromise? What's in the compromise? That's the question. Come on, how stupid can you be? Okay, so, what should be on, in the compromise? So, look, when it comes to the Bush tax cuts for the rich, off the table. If I'm, deal if I'm with President, Ob if I'm President Obama and I'm dealing with the Republicans, now why is it off the table? There are things I'm going to compromise on, but I'm not going to compromise on that. Why? I ran a whole election on it.
Besides which, I don't have to do anything. Those tax cuts expire on January 1st of 2013. That's in six weeks. So Republicans come in, they say, oh, we're not going to compromise. I'm like, good, don't. Six weeks from now, they expire. What are you going to do then? I win, you lose. Oh, but then the middle class tax cut expired too. That's what Obama uses as an excuse all the time. How easy is it, man? All right, on January 2nd, I put together a bill. Uh, I have Harry Reid introduce it in the Senate that says, I am going to give a tax cut to 98% of Americans. Okay, now Republicans, you going to vote against it? Oh, be my guest. How about it, Hoss? Vote against 98% of the country. Vote against middle class tax cut. Go for it. Be my guest. They're not going to vote against that. And if they do, they're going to get slaughtered in 2014. Okay, so it's the easiest win of all time. It's a layup. Now, that doesn't mean you don't compromise. Here's what's on the table. So how much are we going to increase taxes on capital gains, dividend income, carried interest, estate tax, corporate taxes? Now, of course, Obama's going in the reverse direction. He's going to actually cut corporate taxes. But I would say, but he says, oh, we're going to take away loopholes and deductions. Here's what I'd say. No, no, you're, you're right. Boehner and all those guys. Yeah, we are going to take away loopholes and deductions. But no, we're not going to cut corporate taxes. We're going to keep the same rate. Oh, but no, you can't. Oh, I can and I will. And uh, on capital gains, look, I think you should go back up to 39.6. You should be charged like for the top bracket, like anything else. Dividends, same thing. Carried interest, what a joke. That's just a loophole for uh, people like Mitt Romney and private equity. No, those are all going back up. Now, does it have to go back up to 39.6? Well, that's where you have an opposing party, and you can negotiate. I wouldn't bring them up to 39.6. I'm bringing them up to 50%. Okay, but all right, let's negotiate. Can it be lower? Could it be 25? Could it be 30? Yeah, that's where you have compromise, okay? But no, I'm not going to compromise on the things that have already been resolved. So when it comes to entitlements, well, here's the three things, first of all, that I would play for them. First, they come in the room, I, everybody sit down, and then I say, look, guys, I just want to make it clear. You, you all, let's, in fact, before I even play the table, I say to everybody, hey, you all agree, Republicans say that Ronald Reagan's always right, right? I mean, whenever I've debated, you guys always say, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan. Is, uh, so is Ronald Reagan an asshole, or is he right? All right, everybody, raise your hand if you think Ronald Reagan's an asshole and doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, none of you raised your hand. So, so you all agree Ronald Reagan's right. All right, well, let me show you Ronald Reagan. Social Security has nothing to do with the deficit. Social Security is totally funded by the payroll tax levied on employer and employee. Nothing to do with the deficit. So Ronald Reagan agrees, and I assume you agree, and I certainly agree, that Social Security is off the table, okay? Now, how about Medicare and Medicaid? Now, I remember somebody ran a campaign on cutting Medicare, and in fact, he would say quite often, he was the VP, uh, I, I believe, candidate on the Republican ticket, but his uh, idea was considered the big idea on the Republican side. Let's see how that turned out. Optional personal retirement accounts for Social Security, converting Medicare into a defined contribution sort of voucher system. Yeah, that's what the American people said. No, we're not going to do your dumbass idea of turning Medicare into a voucher. Overwhelmingly rejected. Hey, you know what happened? We just had an election about it. And the answer was, how about your Medicaid idea? Let's see how that turned out. What we're trying to do here is couple Medicaid reforms with food stamp reforms, housing assistance reforms, education reforms for job training. We're trying to couple these things by sending them back to the states and block grants. So we just had an election about whether we're going to turn Medicare into a voucher and Medicaid into block grants. 
and the American people said no. So that is now off the table because the American people have spoken. Now I can compromise on other spending cuts, and God, it would hurt to cut the pensions of federal employees, etc., etc. I think it's a bad idea for the economy, but I don't just get to make the decisions. I know that there's got to be some degree of compromise. But when it comes to the ratios, President Obama keeps bragging about, I want to do three times as many spending cuts, three dollars of spending cuts for every dollar of tax increases. So that's his formula, right? But that was before the election. Here would be my formula after the election. One dollar in spending cuts for three dollars in tax increases. That's the new formula. You know why? Because we just had an election. And that's what the American people voted for. You don't like it, well, you know what might have helped is if you won the election. Now, would I stick with just one to three? Since I'm not actually in these negotiations, I can tell you that that would be my starting point so that you can finally have what President Obama claims he wants, a balanced approach. You give me $2 in tax increases, I'll give you $2 in spending cuts. Then we can have a real conversation, okay? But what President Obama is offering is not a real conversation. He is giving them three times as many things as we're getting in return. That one trillion dollars in tax increases would happen if we did absolutely nothing in six weeks. That's not a compromise. That's giving them everything they want, even after you won the election. And then throwing in the cuts to Medicare and Medicaid on top for icing on the cake, and then throwing in corporate tax cuts, and then saying, hey, you know what? Maybe we won't even stick to our guns on raising taxes on people making over $250,000. That ain't compromise. That's a capitulation. And that's not because President Obama was weak. He just ran an incredibly strong campaign when it was his ass on the line. No, it's because President Obama wants the same result as Republicans. As we showed you yesterday, his top advisor on Wall Street said their interests are aligned. In fact, let me go to Lee Brody from CNBC. He wrote an article and said, a plan presented by Romney and embraced by the GOP to cap deductions appears to be gaining traction despite Romney's loss. So here we go again. It doesn't matter who wins. They already had a plan. The oligarchy had a plan. And they were going to do that plan no matter what. Larry Kudlow is quoted in that article. And he says, without any shame or conscience, I really hope Obama buys into Mitt's plan. Well, I guess you do hope that, don't you? Now, Larry Kudlow, of course, is right-winger, representative of the rich on CNBC. But you're saying, okay, these are just guys wishful thinking on CNBC. Well, then let's go to Kent Conrad. Now, he's not just a Democrat. He's the chairman of the budget committee on the Senate side. Quote, about the Mitt Romney plan, let's just say there's a renewed interest. And that's how this game is played. They pretend to be progressive during the elections, but once that's over, you're going to get the Mitt Romney plan anyway. It makes me physically ill. Now, my job is to let you know what's happening before it happens. As I tell you every time, you'll get to see whether I'm right or wrong. And I'm not making this stuff up. I'm just, you think I told Kent Conrad to say, hey, he's reconsidering the Mitt Romney plan? No, he said it. You think I told Jay Carney, think about, hey, lower, adjusting the rates? 
on $250,000 and bring him up? No, he said it. He said we're open to it. Did I put these words in Obama's mouth? No. My job is to interpret what they're saying. If you think that they're not going to screw you, good luck to you. But you're wrong. It's Jake from New York All News, and I'm calling about the fiscal cliff. You know, they're having a debate in Congress right now about whether to let the taxes go up on the wealthy and uh, and to renew them for the middle class. Well, you know, the reason they've been they've been able to get away with this BS for so long is because they've been telling us that these cuts need to stay in place because those are the job creators and those are the, the owners of small businesses. Well, we know that they're not the job creators because we haven't seen jobs created, you know, going all the way back to 2001 when they put the Bush cuts in place. But when they say small businesses, they're actually using a verbal sleight of hand. Um, they're using a definition for a small business that's only counting how many owners the business has. So, for example, Donald Trump is a small business because there's only one owner. Or Coke Industries is a small business because it's only two brothers running the place, right? I mean, we know that a small business should be defined by how much revenue or uh, how many employees they have. And when they, when they look at small businesses that way, 98% of them don't qualify for the Bush tax cuts. Okay? So... You know, it's it's really time to stop the BS. It's really t time to call them call them out on the debate. You know, and they've also polled millionaires. They, you know, millionaires are on board with their taxes going up because they know it benefits the overall economy. You know, to do that. Um, same thing with Republicans. A majority of Republicans are on board with this. So we're really only fighting a small minority of Republicans in Congress for holding the tax, you know, uh, rates on the middle class hostage. They already have done this, you know, in 2010, and it's time to stop the BS. So we need to have these debates right now. We need to have them out in the open and insist that they define small businesses the right way. Okay, thanks a lot, Jay. Thanks for all you're doing. Speak to you soon. Hello, Jay. This is Vicki from the Pacific Northwest. I hope you will not shut down the GMO discussion just yet. There's a lot more to be said. I've remained a listener as long as I could, but as someone who's been involved in organic and sustainable agriculture for over 40 years, I can tell you that the discussion has been extremely shallow. <clears throat> there are plenty of reasons that we should avoid GMO foods. They can't be distilled to a bumper sticker or a talking point, so please bear with me. First, we may as well discard the cancer argument, which is used mainly because cancer is an effective scare word. Cause and effect are extremely difficult to prove because cancer can take decades to manifest. I lost both of my parents to cancer in their 50s. <clears throat> both had been heavy smokers, but I still cannot prove that cigarettes caused their death. 
Only 2% of Americans are farmers, and most do not understand the farming issues, except as they experience direct effects, such as the case of food poisoning. Understanding of the GMO issue goes far beyond our own bodies. We should, however, give some consideration to whether we want to be ingesting biological toxins and pesticides inserted into the very DNA of the foods Monsanto wants us to eat. While it's true that food crops have been modified through cross-pollination and breeding for as long as there have been plants, Mother Nature has never, to my knowledge, crossed an ear of corn with a bottle of Roundup. People need to understand the fundamental difference between natural breeding and genetic manipulation. Increased production of food through the use of GM is really a non-issue. A Canadian researcher, E. Ann Clark, has found that in general GMO crops do not produce higher yields when all factors are considering, considered, including the need to buffer GMO crops from traditional crops, which means planting crops around the GMO crops. <clears throat> if we want to grow more food, it would make a lot more sense to give people who are crammed in cities access to land and training in permaculture. I refer your listeners to the work of Dr. Vandana Shiva on this topic. The potential for cross-pollination with traditional crops or wild plants is very high. Harvested genetically engineered seed has to be treated like the biohazard it is. For example, it has to be transported in covered trucks so that it will not accidentally fall on the road and off to the side to spread. As mentioned, there has to be a buffer crop planted between a GMO crop and other crops it may cross with. At one point, Monsanto was developing a terminator gene which would shut down embryonic development in a seed so that farmers couldn't save their seed. What if this gene had spread to the wild? The alarm in the scientific community was so great that they stopped the program. At least we hope they did. Farmers who sign up to grow GMO crops are not only obliged to purchase the seed, but also the chemicals developed to augment the GMO crops. These farmers are placed under a gag rule and can be sued if they talk to reporters or even other farmers. See PercySchmeiser.com, P-E-R-C-Y-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R.com for more on this. GMO products may work well at first, but resistance occurs. Resistant weeds ultimately show up requiring an escalation of herbicide use. Organic farmers worry about losing the effectiveness of Bacillus thuringiensis, a naturally occurring bacterium that produces a toxin that kills certain pests. Let's look at the difference in approach. The organic farmer sprays a dilute solution of the bacteria on the crop's leaves. Pests eat the bacteria, which then produce the toxin inside the pest gut. And I underline those words. The rest washes off to be degraded in the soil. Little or no toxin ever reaches a human body. On the other hand, Monsanto took the toxin and inserted it into the genetic structure of the plant so that every cell has the potential to contain the toxin. Not only do we consume the toxin, this heavy dose of toxin means more resistance and pests, so organic farmers could use this valuable tool. This is probably more than most listeners want to digest, but these issues are just the tip of the iceberg. The motivation for developing GM crops 
Christ is far from humanitarian. It's all about profit and control for a few monstrous corporations. They fear labeling only because they know that, given a choice and adequate information, consumers will use the invisible hand of the market to smack them down. Thanks, Tyson. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So over the last couple of episodes, I I read two excerpts from the book Ishmael, which is a fictional novel but is trying to be rooted very much in reality to discuss some fundamental tenets of humanity, uh, problems with humanity, and then what to do about those. And the sections that I read uh, address specifically population growth in the third world and famine in the third world and and how those are connected. And the basic idea was that ever-increasing supplies of food aid from first world countries uh, to famished populations would actually lead to ever-increasing populations in those areas, which would actually have the counterproductive effect of creating more famished people rather than less. And the author addresses some of uh, some issues like contraception and education, which are the primary points of objection uh, brought up by you know most people. Uh, I guess most people who uh, you know objected to the author probably when he was writing, and the same points were brought up by listeners either uh, by voicemail or by email uh, to me. And in the author, you know, he di- he dismissed these as insufficient, you know, that they're not wrong, that they're just insufficient to solve the underlying problem. And, you know, that we happily send food aid, but we don't send, uh, you know, crates full of condoms, or, uh, you know, we don't insist that, uh, you know, the famished populations, like, promise to uh, get educated or stop having kids before they get the food to break the cycle. And and so he argues that sending the food just perpetuates uh, the cycle. So if you take this argument on its face and discuss how to implement a plan to stop sending surplus food to famished countries in order to decrease the number of starving, suffering people, then you end up with a very prickly moral dilemma. You know, I mean, it seems straightforward to take whatever action will ultimately decrease suffering in the long run, but if those actions in the short term increase suffering, uh, then that becomes a pretty difficult path to take. And I actually felt like this argument was not terribly unlike that of those who argued before the election that we may be better off if Republicans were to win the White House so that true progressives could regroup and come back stronger later for the sake of the greater good in the long run. I argued at the time that although I may agree with that idea in principle, I didn't feel like it was a strategy that could ever be followed in mass because progressives are too averse to creating suffering in the short term for the sake of the long-term good, which is, of course, what we think would happen if Republicans gained power in government, is just more suffering. So given the totality of our culture and accepted standards morals, I don't think that decreasing the food supply to third world nations is a feasible option if for no other reason that it would be you know, simply not stood for by a huge portion of the population. Uh, and this is the exact, it's actually the exact argument that the book was making. Our collective culture holds us back from doing what is ultimately right and that we need to break free of our current cultural paradigm to see the world in a new way so that we can take the actions that we need to take. Uh, however, 
hopefully, another argument on this issue is the correct one, uh, and that is that essentially people who are starving are never capable of becoming educated, and education is is genuinely the thing that can break the cycle rather than uh, you know restricting food supply, and so you know people who are starving can't ever become educated because they're spending too much time worrying about simply putting food on the table and a population in this state will never break the cycle of high child mortality and high birth rates and so on and so the way to break the cycle is to become educated and the way to become educated is to be well fed so if the idea pans out then doing what is right in the short term to decrease suffering will also turn out to be uh, what's right to do in the long term as those at the very bottom of the economic spectrum around the world rise up beyond the levels of abject poverty uh, to gain education, personal liberation, especially women's liberation, which always ultimately leads to a decreased and sustainable birth rate. So fingers crossed that that's actually the way we're heading and you know that population uh, really does level off at a sustainable level sometime in the relatively near future uh, you know, of course, coupled with the idea that uh, we can r sort of re-engineer uh, the way we get all of our energy so that all those people can be supported in a you know, sustainable energy method that doesn't conflict with, uh, you know, how we maintain the climate. Total, uh, you know, not, not unrelated, but, you know, separate issue there. So that's it for today. Keep those uh, comments coming in on this subject or any other, 206-202-3410. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the show. That is absolutely how the program survives. Uh, stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, DC. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought lines are black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right.